Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. People have wanted to fly basically as long as there have been people, but it's really only been 120 years since we started succeeding at it. At least if you use the Wright brothers as your starting point. But why do we consider them the first, when so many marginally successful attempts took place before them, and when much more successful attempts would come shortly after? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And today we're going to talk about early aviation, which I think is going to be a lot of fun, actually. Um, it's a topic that I'm not sure why we haven't come up with it before. It seems like it, it seems ripe for this, this format. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so I've got a nice, easy question I thought we'd start off with. Who's the first person to fly, Kevin? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm going to say... <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, my go-to is uh, Wright Brothers, but I mean, I know Da Vinci had a helicopter of some kind. I we're, know a lot of people made wings. We're overthinking it now. Oh, no. I think what this question kind of gets to is the heart of uh, a kind of deeper question behind it, which is, what does it mean to fly? I was going to say, it depends on what you mean by flying. Right. It's not. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people did like the Buzz Lightyear falling with style. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually a great way of putting it. No, it's it's a really complicated thing to define. And when you look at people trying to define it over the years, like what exactly is flying in order mainly to claim firsts, let's be realistic. Right. A lot of the definitions get really convoluted. Yeah, I wonder if it's a lot of I fell slower than expected and therefore, you know, I had some effect on the gravity on me. Sure. Yeah, no, I think I think that's not completely uh, un unreasonable. Um, I, I think, though, that when it comes down to it, there's a little bit of a feel to it, right? Like, what what is it? What is it? Which which attempts feel like flying versus which attempts feel like failures? Like, there's a little bit of that sort of heart to the to the sense of it and i think mm -hmm. that in turn points back to like a very human desire to understand what it means to fly right like that's that's a really common sort of daydream uh maybe even a wish yeah i think so it's a pretty common dream as far as i'm aware yeah have you had uh, have you ever had flying dreams uh i haven't personally but uh <laughs> So I, I'm just sort of a broken person, I guess. But uh, I know it's a common one, and I know it's a common superpower that people wish they had as well. Yeah, oh, I've definitely had flying dreams. They're they're very it, they feel very real in the moment when it's happening. Absolutely, and it's as you said, it's a pretty common one. Not everyone has them, but I I should have looked up a number before I actually started down this pathway. I I think I saw somewhere around the 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 
30 to 40 percent mark of people have had flying dreams it's very common it's really high up there plus there's just the whole you know looking at birds and going who do you think you are think you're better than me flying around (laughs) yeah i'd say it's a pretty common like metaphor for freedom and so on as well so it's it's something that a lot of people have looked at and wanted to do for a long time yeah definitely and this this really shows up in sort of like the uh mythological records i mean the stories of people who can fly are uh you know they exist in every culture basically uh they they stretch back thousands of years you've got your you know your greeks with the the icarus myth right get the the feathers in in wax and you know flew too high and they melted and blah 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 you know everyone knows that one in indian mythology there's uh stories of something called a vimana which depending on the story is either like a flying palace or a flying chariot which sounds extremely cool yep for sure um the bible has a flying machine in it ezekiel has a a vision of a a flying chariot that's being kind of born up by angels i guess is a real weird passage it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but Uh, hold on (laughs) what the angels are the beasts of burden in this one (laughs) sure but i mean this is like a this is like a santa's sleigh sort of logic in terms of like flying right just because it's being pulled by something doesn't mean it's not flying Okay. Um, Listen, I'm not going to of all the things we're going to do on this show, debating like biblical interpretation is not going to be one of them, Miller. Yeah, there's Helios who pulls the sun across the sky. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, flying carpets, like extremely common in, in like across the world, mainly Middle Eastern, most famously, you know, Arabian Nights kind of thing. Right. Right. And then there's a. Did you know that there are mythical uh, Britain kings other than King Arthur? Because uh, there's actually a bunch of them. Uh, one of them, King... Uh, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's Bladded, had supposedly the ability to summon artificial wings made out of feathers that he could flap around with. Oh, man, my D&D character. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it, it's not someone I've heard of before, but if you, you're telling me that there are other mythical British kings, like, yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, you got you got the famous one. Why not more? I, I think what's what's kind of common throughout these is that, like, generally speaking, uh, they sort of fall into two, like, major uh types there's either like flying machines which are usually like magical in nature or Mm -hmm. you've got this like attempt to emulate nature in a certain way right like try and build birds wings but for a person or sometimes it's other flying uh creatures that they're trying to emulate but in general like and and i mean it makes perfect sense but like in general those are the sort of two routes you're going yeah it Interesting to me that like we have this sort of through line even to like current day where it's like, you know, you have your uh, mythology of like flying horses that you would ride into battle and then flying chariots. And now we have like, you know, the concept of a flying car. Yeah, sure. It's just like one of your primary source of conveyance is put some wings on there or, you know, some <laughs> hover jets or something like that. And then you're off to the races, the sky races. Yeah, there you go. It's it's like this is a complete sidebar, but like. It's funny how many of these stories end up being like pointed to as sort of like evidence of like ancient aliens nonsense where it's like, well, see, they had they had stories about flying chariots. Clearly, this must be UFOs. And it's like, maybe they just thought this was cool, dog. Like I do. 
Yeah, it doesn't. It's dope. It doesn't really. It doesn't really need to be deeper than that at all. We're still talking about it, honestly. <laughs> Anyways, when it comes down to like actual like kind of uh, recorded attempts at people flying, I mean, we can save a lot of ground by really generalizing on these. Um, a lot of people just tried basically strapping wing uh, feathers to themselves to make wings and then jumping off of really tall things. <laughs> and they just didn't go that well like ever it's just really like okay well birds have feathers so if i have feathers i can fly that's the only difference between me and a bird miller listen behold a man i <laughs> thank you thank you for that literally i was reading about an attempt uh yesterday just going over a couple last last minute things i read about an attempt where a guy uh glued a bunch of chicken feathers to himself and he jumped out of a tower and he ended up breaking his both his legs and when people are like hey man what went wrong he was like oh you know what i just figured it out i used chicken feathers chickens don't really fly i should have used eagle feathers you know Like that's that's the logic that's at play in a lot of these attempts. These date back as far as like twenty five hundred years ago. If you're looking at Greece, like people have been trying this for a really long time, not successfully, but they've been trying it. So I mean, we can get into this. I'm sure that we will over the course of this podcast. But like, is this just a matter of like, was there just more magical thinking back then, or, or am I just discounting all the magical thinking that is so commonplace in life today that I just don't realize that it's there? <laughs> well, I mean, that's yeah, that's that's definitely a part of it. I would say. I, I think. Uh, I think we can all. Uh, I think we can all see some evidence of that around us from time to time. I, I think a lot of it is when you have a technology, you know, in front of you every single day of your life you've grown up around it like we have with flight which is a weird thing to say but like it's not that long ago that it wasn't commonplace when you have that kind of technology in front of you like it seems self-evident to some extent that that's how human beings would fly right like yeah it's the most natural thing in the world because you've always had it (laughs) yeah to fly you need an airplane like that's what you need or a helicopter or like if you're really brave like a hang glider or something but like Mm -hmm. you're not gonna strap some feathers to your arms and flap hard enough it's just not possible so like part of that is like a basic understanding of like physics right but a part of it is also that we've had all these people that have gone before us and made these stupid attempts that now we know don't work yeah fair when when your example is nature you're basically looking at either birds which flap big wings or Mm -hmm. maybe bats which flap big wings um or possibly insects which flap really tiny wings really fast Mm -hmm. but essentially your your understanding of how flight works appears to be that with enough effort you're able to lift yourself off the ground with wings and wings what are wings if not you know very feathery arms you know what that's fair convince me here i go (laughs) right but like that's that's the that's the example that you have in place and like for, for a lot of the time that we're going to talk about um, I, I mean, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this period, but like for a long time, people really assumed that even in building flying machines, that the format or like the best format for it to take would be 
what we would call now an ornithopter, which means a machine that has flapping wings. The idea that a fixed wing with other methods of propulsion would be a better uh, plan, again, seems self-evident to us now with those examples around us in the world. But like everything flapped. That's how that's how flight worked is you flap hard enough and you fly. Exactly. You don't have like uh, a lot of birds that have another mean of propulsion and they're just keeping their wings fixed right like that doesn't happen in nature really no not really i mean yeah you can you can see you know larger birds uh, birds of prey especially you know gliding on thermals and things like that but like they still counter example but i mean as a as an ancient person you would have no concept of that (laughs) well they just seem to be flapping slowly right and apparently you don't have to flap all the time if you're big enough which human beings are you know it's it's a lot of like this is where like the scientific method comes into things in a really meaningful way a lot of things that seem to reason out uh so things that are rational don't necessarily hold up to like scientific scrutiny and we're especially going to see that when we get to da vinci later but it is they are they are they are two very different things rationality and scientific thinking so anyways there is a record in chinese history of an inventor about two thousand years ago who claimed to have glided about 100 meters by doing the strapping enough feathers to his arms thing there's absolutely like no good evidence of that other than it was written down somewhere and I'm not terribly inclined to believe that personally. Uh, but you know, um, there is a record out there. So now you know about that. I'd say the records of actual attempts that I would believe happened, um, or at least have, have any credibility whatsoever kind of start up again about a thousand years ago, uh, specifically with, uh, there was an Andalusian, uh, inventor named Abbas Ibn Firnas. Uh, Andalusia is like, uh, the Spanish peninsula under uh, Muslim rule. Okay. This inventor constructed wings again out of vulture feathers. Once again, the thinking being like, Oh, vultures are bigger soaring birds. Human beings are bigger. Let's not make it out of, you know, sparrow feathers or whatever. Right. You than a chicken. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. They don't fly. It's a bad choice for feathers. Um, mm-hmm. He, there we have sources and some of them are like some of them have disappeared but sources we do have uh refer to these sources which i know sounds really suspect but <laughs> honestly like we've done history with worse sourcing in other uh in other cases so sounds I, like a thousand year old urban legend <laughs> a friend of a friend told me <laughs> sure well i mean so for example um Last topic I did was on the Greco-Persian Wars, right? You know, the whole like 300, all of that stuff. Um, One of our main sources is like from 500 years later. He's a he's a Roman source, but he had seen a bunch of Greek sources that we can't read anymore. But he referred to those sources and it made him actually quite close in step with uh, more contemporary Greek sources. I see. Okay. It's the kind of thing that does come up every once in a while. I'm, I'm more just trying to say, like, I know it sounds bad, but it's not necessarily something to be rejected out of hand. Now, I do think that this story is probably not true, but uh, according yeah. to the story, uh, these sources say that he jumped off a tower with all these feathers strapped to him and flew uh, what they say is a considerable distance. I couldn't get a number put on it anywhere. Um 
but that he managed to not only fly around a little bit, but he landed back on the tower where he jumped off from. You know what? I think I've heard this now that you mentioned that that he landed back on the tower. I feel like I've heard the story. <laughs> yeah, which would suspect, or which would suggest a level of control, which would be um, extremely hard to believe. Let's let's just call it what it is. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's probably not true. However, when he landed, uh, he was severely injured, and he attributed this injury to the fact that he had forgotten to build himself a tail because birds use their tails to land, apparently. Okay, sure. <laughs> I don't think he was saying that birds, you know, flare their tails to, like, cut their speed. Mm-hmm. I think he's saying that they literally land on their tails. Oh, Which okay. isn't how that works, but, mm-hmm. you know, whatever makes you... You can say something like that like a thousand years ago and no one will be like, hey, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Birds land on their tail. Yeah, that makes sense. No. All the time. Have you never seen a bird before? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, anytime you hear one of like, uh, like, I'm going to go a little off topic. Anytime you hear like a story on like Sawbones, uh, the medical history podcast, for example, where it's like, yeah. oh yeah, you can just cure somebody by doing this. It's like, well, you know, it didn't work <laughs> like if you tried it at all. Yeah, for sure. No, they, they always sound very, uh, yeah, it's again, it's that thing where like, we know, we kind of know a better answer, so it just seems more ridiculous, but also, yeah, you kind of wonder how anybody bought it ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have a very similar story from England in the 11th century. Uh, a Benedictine monk named Elmer of Malmesbury, which is the oh. most medieval <laughs> British name I've ever heard. Yeah, definitely. I love it. Uh, he constructed wings. I didn't find a lot of details on how his were built necessarily. He also jumped off the top of a tower with these wings and according to witnesses glided about 200 meters okay which is nothing to sneeze at that's a ways big if true big if true uh however he also broke both of his legs upon landing and was lame for the rest of his life because of it he also attributed his poor landing to a lack of a tail so (laughs) that's that's two people we've had that have said it now make a tail the guy (laughs) I mean, not that that would work, but I mean, stop making these excuses. Well, that's that's the thing. Like, it wouldn't do anything. But at at a certain point, you're kind of like, well, why didn't you just make the tail, though? Wouldn't that have solved your problem? I'm picturing someone now in the 12th century being like, guys, I also didn't make a tail. But you know what? I knew better. (laughs) You know, shame on me. (laughs) I really should have had that down by now. Yeah, yeah. It seems like all of my predecessors wished I had made a tail, and I I got about 80% of the way there, and I guess I also forgot the tail. Meanwhile, over in China, we already have human flight. Oh. Yeah. See, here's the thing. In about the 5th century BCE in China, so Mm -hmm. 2,500 years ago, um, they invent this little toy. It's called a kite. Okay, yep. China's actually really well positioned for this because you know what makes an excellent kite is silk fabric because it's very light and strong. Right. And uh, bamboo, which again, very light, very strong. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> hey, right, they've got ex- exactly what they need to make good kites. And I never 
considered it honestly <laughs> yeah yeah I, they generally like split the bamboo too because it gives you like a like a it's, it's still a fairly strong um support but it's half the weight right right yeah um and like initially these are novelties right like they're toys but it doesn't take long for people to start finding more practical uses for these kites and like very quickly like military applications because suddenly and i mean remember this is like this is pre gunpowder this is pre like many forms of artificial lighting they're really good for signaling like you can put a kite up pretty high and it can be seen from pretty far away yeah, that makes sense. So when you can use it for signaling, you can use it for more and more complicated communication. You can use it for some rudimentary uh, meteorology. So just testing the wind. It's the kind of thing that would be really helpful, uh, for example, at ports before sailors sail out. They get a bit of an idea of what the winds are doing. That makes sense. A rudimentary semaphore almost? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's about the right idea from what I understand. And... It's also used for measuring distances because you get some, uh, you know, you get some trigonometry going in there, right? And uh, you can you can start doing some surveying uh, pretty well with kites. Um, now you need the line like perfectly taut to make it work, and it's not the most precise thing. It's better than pacing things off. Yeah, for sure, I could see that. Eventually, the technology, because you know, they're, they're incentivized to make better and better kites that are you know more stable because they want reliability that are able to fly in worse winds because again mm -hmm. you can't only do military things when it's windy um eventually they make them big enough so that they're able to be seen far enough that they're big enough that they can lift a human being yeah and so they start doing military recon possibly as early as the sixth century ce so 1400 years ago by basically usually taking prisoners because of the inherent danger of the whole thing, strapping Man. them strapping them to kites and flying them up high to see what the enemies are doing. Man, that's wild. And like, you can't get the highest on one of these things, but you're flying. Yeah. It's it's probably very dangerous and and you know, a, a stop in the wind would make you plummet instantly i'm imagining <laughs> you know because oh. i'm picturing like a you know 150 pound dude or or you know up around that area being strapped to a kite that's maybe like what 12 feet across at that point <laughs> i would imagine so yeah and you're absolutely right it's incredibly dangerous and extremely unreliable um like also the thing i keep thinking about when i think about this is that like your entire life is depending on the guy at the bottom holding the string and if he lets go you're just out of there forever yeah yeah you're gonna drift off a few like a half mile and you know crash into a tree charlie brown style yeah exactly it's it's terrible it's such a bad method but i mean on certain like by certain metrics people are flying already now, what they don't have is reliability. They don't have uh, the ability to like navigate. They don't have any control whatsoever. Those are the things that are really going to be developed over the, the course of aviation history, early aviation history, that distinguish you know, human flight from being put up high on a kite. Yeah, I, I'm kind of seeing the through line from like, you know, being the dude strapped to a kite with no control over where you're going to in an emergency, almost making it into like a glider. Mm -hmm. 
but I but that also requires a knowledge of what you're doing and the ability to not panic. <laughs> sure. You know, in a scary circumstance. So the first time you're doing it is like the, the time that you need to nail it. Like you don't get yeah, exactly. you don't get tests, right? Like you don't get you don't get second chances on that one. If somebody managed to like, I don't know, a, a kite got away and they managed to like kind of work back and forth the, the the kite in a way that managed to, you know, land safely. That's just kind of it, it's it's a few steps short of divine intervention and not necessarily what I would call controlled flight. Right. No, exactly. The guy got lucky and it'll never be out and it'll never happen again. Yeah. Way. Yeah, exactly. So. All of these guys, you know, on kites in China and all of these crude attempts at building people wings, like there is sort of a sense that like possibly you need something a little larger than just what you can strap to your arms. Like there's this sense that like basically people aren't strong enough like on their own, right? They got to figure something out. So I'm going to jump. I'm just going to jump right ahead to Da Vinci, because honestly, like in between what we're talking about now and Da Vinci, it's mainly a series of guys jumping off of cliffs or towers or other high things and then injuring themselves terribly at best or dying at worst. Uh, Let me ask you a quick question before we move on, actually, because we have a lot of these examples where people are like uh, they're, they're strapping themselves down with various bird feathers and stuff like that. Did anyone ever try to do like like a leathery bat wing sort of uh, amalgam? Well, it's interesting because Da Vinci is actually one of the first people to consider that as a viable option. Oh, okay. Perfect segue then. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. See, you know, the, the interesting thing about Da Vinci, who, you know, for, for context, he lives 1452 to 1519. So mainly working in the 15th and early 16th century. It's, I, I want to be clear before we go too much further that his ideas about flight are not known to the wider public until nearly the year 1800. So he's not going to really influence things for a while. But the way he's thinking about it is a really good example of like the best that Renaissance thought has to offer of this, right? And right. this is where we get back to that idea of like rational, but not scientific. So he's thinking things through, but he's not always experimenting on them in like a rigorous way. He's coming to conclusions before he's tested them. Mm-hmm. His thinking on how wings would work for a person is that there's an issue in, in his mind of bird wings that they are what he would describe as perforated, Right. Some air is let through those feathers. Right. Whereas a bat wing, because it's leathery, it's unperforated in his mind. It has a larger surface area with which to catch the the wind. Um, So he very much sees the bat wing as like the superior option, especially when it comes to human flight. Okay. He's interested in a lot of different ideas. He's looking at ornithopters, so like flapping machines. He's looking at parachutes. Um, so this idea of like collecting the air and like uh, increasing drag, things like that. He's also looking at aerial screws, which are um, sort of a predecessor to the helicopter. His ideas around how a helicopter works are non-viable. They look super cool, but they would never like they're not even close to workable. Yeah, those are those cool drawings you always see with the big screw top, uh, like flying vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but all of his ideas on flight come back to a single 
uh, concept that he has, which is uh, specifically that, uh, and, and this is a quote, an object offers as much resistance to the air as the air does to the object. Okay. Sure. I, I mean, I know it sounds self-evident, but basically what he's saying is things push back, on, like the air pushes back on things uh, just as much as things are pushing on the air. So like there's a, there's a, <laughs> the, the thing that's really interesting about this to me is that he is anticipating Newton's third law <laughs> a full 200 years before Newton, mm-hmm. like entirely 200 years. Like the, the, that's the third law is, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? If a force acts on something, there is an exactly opposite force in the other direction. And so what Da Vinci is saying is that, well, when a bird pushes down on the air, the air is actually pushing up on the bird. Like both of those things are happening. And so Mm -hmm. what he's seeing in the bat wing is more area with which to push down on the air to lift yourself up. A more forceful flap. (laughs) Yeah, more forceful flap is a really good way of putting it. Um, so a lot of his like really early stuff is like focused on like human power and like creating machines that allow people to flap. Uh, when he looks at things like, um, you know, flapping mechanisms, or even when he looks at like the aerial screws, Da Vinci was really interested in, uh, like simple machines, right? Like, like I was going to say, this is, this is the way that you're putting it is almost like the way that like Archimedes would describe like a lever, which is that you can put additional force on something if you have a long enough lever and a, a fulcrum. Yeah. You know, I think he famously said that he could move mountains if you had a long enough lever. So it's sort of the idea of using these simple machines to amplify manpower. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think the quote from Archimedes was actually, uh, uh, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's a great quote. It's it's whew, shivers. Um, but like the point, the point is he's looking at all these like classical machines and he's looking at something like a screw and it's like, well, that's a really good way of displacing like force, right? That's a that's a way of creating downward force. Like he's thinking of uh, he's thinking of a helicopter or or predecessors to a helicopter as literally screwing itself into the sky, as though it was right. screwing itself into wood. Right? It's it's lifting itself by creating this downward force through its turning, mm-hmm. um, and it's a really cool. interesting concept. the The main pitfall of uh, da Vinci's work is that he was very focused on a, a principle of flight that we would call drag, which is air resistance and had no real concept of what we call lift which is actually like allowing air pressure to uh uh lift the craft or or the you know the the flying uh object so right. his his whole concept is about um well it, i mean in a lot of ways his most successful idea would be the parachute right and mm-hmm. even then he didn't necessarily have like all the best ideas about how to make one um like he had wooden frames and things like that right um Um, but what he's interested in mainly comes down to like i guess what we could we we could describe as like terminal velocity um he's looking to stop things from falling but flying isn't the same as stopping something from falling right those are those are those are slightly different concepts now, I mean, to his credit, most of the flying attempts from from this point, you know, or, or up until this point, had been uh, falling at various speeds. Yeah, right. the idea of going up was uh, it seemed a little beyond reach. 
but you know it, it's 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 really it really shows um especially because most of these things were never actually built by da vinci it shows that difference between like this experimental mindset, like let's try this stuff out, and this sort of like rational mindset of like let's think through how I think this would work. Yeah, like it's purely conceptual at this point. <laughs> yeah, lots of cool drawings, like very cool drawings. I really love his sketches, but uh -huh. I mean, he didn't ever complete. Uh, we think he never completed construction on any of these flying machines. There's a common story that either he or one of his pupils attempted a flight in 1505 it's almost certainly apocryphal like it's there there's there's basically no evidence to to suggest that this actually happened i just have this beautiful mental image of him being like have you tried any of this stuff well no i don't want to break both my legs i know how this goes <laughs> <laughs> well i'm gonna have to make a tail first it doesn't make any sense yeah, well, that's far beyond me <laughs> um on the other side of things there is like another very reasonable way to get yourself into the air which is again another pr principle that goes back to uh archimedes which is buoyancy mm -hmm. there is an understanding that hot air rises that reaches back again like 2300 years uh especially in china if you look at uh sky lanterns you've, you've seen paper lanterns before yep definitely i was gonna ask if that was where that came from yeah that seems to be where it starts and i mean having uh, again this is a material concern, and I, I can't stress enough how much of aviation history relies on engineering and like material sciences problems over conceptual understandings or scientific understandings. I imagine it would have to, for sure. A lot of the times it's just people like sitting around waiting for the right materials to be made in order to execute these ideas that they have. So in the case of specifically uh, sky lanterns, access to rice paper is really important because it's extremely light and it's very thin but it's like not like it, it, it's it's okay with like exposure to heat and so mm -hmm. the idea of putting a little uh candle or a lantern inside one of these paper um it's essentially a paper bag uh it is light enough but it, you know can hold enough uh, hot air to rise up into the air pretty effectively and again it starts off as a toy and then it has you know some ceremonial significance sometimes and it was also used by the military to like mainly for intimidation tactics but again right. every flying um, thing ends up being used by the military at some point fair. the concept doesn't really go a whole lot beyond that though um it's not super understood why specifically hotter air uh rises um you know fluid dynamics is a why it's a ways out at this point yeah true um specifically you don't really get a lot of that stuff until essentially galileo uh in the 1630s he uh managed to prove that weight ha or that air has weight specifically through a series of experiments using uh siphons uh I i'm familiar with the experiment i believe it might be thinking of something similar where um someone went like up a mountain mm -hmm. with like, a a um Gosh, I want to say some sort of siphon in a dish of God, was it mercury? Was it water? I don't remember. But they basically saw that, like, as the air pressure decreased, um, that the it, it, it basically almost acted it, the, the tube acted as a barometer to sort of measure the air pressure at different altitudes. Is that what you're you're very close. You're, you're so close, Miller. I'm very proud oh. of you, though. Uh, that's <laughs> actually 10 years later. That's Blaise Pascal. 
Pascal, that's what it is. Damn yeah, it. <laughs> right experiment, wrong guy. You're just like you're ten. You're literally ten years off. We're talking about a span of thousands of years. That's really, really close. No, what what Galileo did specifically was somebody was trying to siphon something up like a really long way, like several stories, mm-hmm. and a siphon just simply can't lift uh, water that far because siphons work on a principle of atmospheric pressure pushing down and it right. lifting lifting uh, a liquid inside the tube right but you get to a certain point where there's so much liquid inside that tube that it's heavier than the actual weight of the atmosphere and it can uh-huh. no longer lift it that's uh that's what galileo ran into pascal's uh experiments uh, again using mercury you're absolutely right mostly because it's much heavier than air and so it doesn't need nearly as far to go before it's heavier than the air so it's easier to see where that difference is pascal was noting variability of air pressure at different uh altitudes again to prove essentially that uh atmospheric dynamics are extremely similar to like hydrodynamics uh in other words that the atmosphere behaves as a liquid right it pools in the deepest places and has more pressure when it's deeper down These are all, again, things that we kind of take for granted. Like the idea, like the word air pressure is like ubiquitous. Like it's on the weather every single day kind of thing, right? Right. These are all like major breakthroughs because it's thinking about things that are so prevalent that it's hard to think about them. Yeah, I can't imagine that there was a um, very big conceptual idea of what air was at that point, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. It was very much like that. Like we didn't have a, a whole lot of atomic theory, I don't think yet. So it, even thinking of air as anything, if it couldn't be observed or sort of measured in any uh, way, was probably difficult for the layman to grasp. Yeah, not to mention ideas like you know what wind is, and like the idea that it's it's uh, it's a a function of the atmosphere rather than a thing separate from the air around us. You know, like little things like that get. Are, are starting to be talked about in this in this period but it's it's really difficult stuff uh to kick off conceptually but uh-huh. once once someone makes that breakthrough then things kind of get rolling right in the 1670s uh an italian scientist i suppose we can call him francesco lana de terzi uh, he measured the absolute air pressure at sea level as in what the pressure of the atmosphere is Uh And in doing so, recognized sort of the the relationship, I suppose, between fluid buoyancy, like ships and air buoyancy and like the possibility for that being uh, a part of physics, like a part of the physics of the world around us. It's such a fundamental thing that I'm struggling to put it into words other than he realized that things are the way they are. but you yeah, know. yeah, that like the way that a ship can float on water, the way there could be something light enough to basically float in the air. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. However, we are also a good uh, close to hundred years before we start isolating gases from the atmosphere, and so this idea of having like a different air is kind of beyond them at this point. However, Terzi does uh, propose an idea of an airship that would be essentially a ship as we know ships now. So it would have a sail for moving around and navigation, things like that. But it would be lifted by four spheres made of very thinly beaten copper. 
And these spheres would have all of the air pumped out of them. Okay, awesome. (laughs) So that there would be, so that, you know, there's, there's extremely low pressure inside the spheres. He's thinking of these as like a balloon full of air sitting on water. So Mm -hmm. to like a vacuum sphere sitting in the air would be buoyant. Like this is still, this is still a model that is like theoretically possible. There's nothing wrong with it necessarily. Um, Today you would refer to it as a vacuum airship, basically. Mm -hmm. The main problem with this idea is that you can't hold a big enough vacuum to be buoyant that will overcome the weight of the container that can resist the crushing pressure of the outside atmospheric forces. Okay, yeah, I see. Um, By the time you pump enough air out of the sphere to become buoyant, the pressure on the outside of the sphere will be too great for the sphere to not collapse. Not collapse, yeah. Or the sphere will be too heavy to resist the collapse and it won't be buoyant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which is why, you know, when when they have like vacuum tubes of like very strong steel or whatever it is that they use for those, they don't just float away. Um, right. the, the container itself is holding down the vacuum, essentially. Um, right. Now, as much as this has never been a viable option, it's theoretically sound, number one. And number two, the only thing keeping it from being a viable option is, again, material science. Um, to the point yep. where it's been a question of whether, and like, I'm sorry, I can hear the eyes rolling already, but like when graphene stuff comes along, right? Like carbon nanotubes. Carbon nanotubes would be the thing now. Where yeah. it's like static and not collapse but but light enough that it could you know be buoyant still like that's an interesting idea yeah and i get it carbon nanotubes they're gonna solve everything batteries are fixed now we can sail with vacuum airships uh like i I get it it's just another material like it's not you know the savior of all these problems however you know the problems that we have here are we need something very strong and very light and carbon nanotubes do actually fill that uh, that niche. Now we haven't managed to manufacture anything that would actually uh, work in that manner, but we continue to move in that direction, which is kind of interesting. In 1709, a uh, Portuguese uh, priest, Bartolomeo de Guzmão, uh, built a small hot air balloon model uh, that he was able to use to lift a ball um, to the ceiling of a palace, about four meters. Uh, in a demonstration to King John V of of Portugal. He was hoping to basically get funding to say, you know, essentially, if I can lift a ball with one this size, imagine what we can do with a bigger one. Right, yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't get funding for this, and the the idea basically uh, dies with him there. But this is essentially the creation of the hot air balloon, uh, at least in principle. Mm -hmm. In 1766, Henry Cavendish... Uh, discovers hydrogen gas. He's able to uh, sub- uh, uh, separate it from water uh, using an electric charge. Um, he believed that uh, hydrogen was like a pseudo-alchemic uh, substance known as phlogiston, which is uh, flammable air. Uh, it was this idea that existed in alchemy. Uh, you and I actually talked about it a little bit way back in the day when we talked about, (laughs) yeah, but he thought that's what hydrogen was originally. So he didn't necessarily really understand what it was that he'd separated, 
but by 1783, uh, Antoine Lavoisier uh, recognized it as a separate gas from air. He named it hydrogen uh, from the Latin words for water former, basically because when you burn hydrogen, it recombines with oxygen in the air and creates water. Right. So that's where the name comes from. He also recognized that it was significantly lighter than the air around it. In fact, it had already been pointed out in 1780 by Scottish physicist Joseph Black, um, who specifically not only proposed it as a lifting gas for like a balloon, uh, buoyancy in the air, but actually demonstrated practically. He generated enough uh, hydrogen to uh, lift a balloon in the air, like, you know, like we would see a helium balloon, except this is 1780, so everyone bonkers for it. Right. Now, there's a big problem with balloons full of hydrogen um other than the fact that it's extremely flammable do you know what the do you know what the second biggest problem is with a balloon full of hydrogen oh gosh other than it's extremely flammable um my guess is that uh i i don't know (laughs) you can't contain it super well would be my (laughs) yeah that's exactly it it leaks really easily um and the reason for that is essentially hydrogen atoms are really really small they've they slip through spaces at like an atomic level that uh, the regular air does not leak through. And so it was just sort of hard to have a balloon full of hydrogen. So yeah, like on, on one hand, we have all this like science stuff. On the other hand, you have these two brothers in France, Joseph Michel and Jacques Etienne, mm-hmm. the Montgolfier brothers, who really don't care about all this hydrogen stuff necessarily. All right. Their parents own a um, like a paper producing facility. Okay. And they just have access to a lot of paper, which is really kind of a weird thing to say. I know, except this is the 1770s, and honestly, paper making is a relatively high tech process at the time. Okay. Yeah, I could say that. And you can do things with paper to make it, you know, a little stronger, a little more resilient, and. Uh, you know, they get interested in around 1775. They get really interested in the idea of parachutes uh, and they start making parachutes out of paper, uh, tr- treated paper, but still it's paper mm-hmm. and uh, start having a little bit of success there. I mean, it's still an extremely dangerous uh, hobby, but they start playing around with the idea of flying and it starts to kind of uh, really appeal to them. They eventually have to... Um, switch away from paper to cloth uh when they start uh working with hot air balloons uh they move from uh paper uh, sorry they move from parachutes to hot air balloons because they're kind of sick of just falling slowly they want to go upwards and by now this principle of like hot air uh creating lift is well known enough that they just want to see how big they can make it and they just have access to the kind of materials that you can make big balloons out of Initially, they're working with steam. Again, this idea of like hot air being less dense than cold air and therefore more buoyant isn't super well understood here, at least by them. Their understanding of it is that steam is essentially a separate substance from the air and that steam has innate lifting qualities to it. All right. 
I, I don't see that working too well. <laughs> well, the, like the thought is that like steam doesn't rise because of like atmospheric dynamics. It's that steam itself has some sort of property that causes it to rise so that when it rises inside a container, uh, as long as it's light enough, it's able to lift it from within. Okay. That's the thought process here. They're mm -hmm. wrong, but that's that's the thought. Yeah, the process is wrong, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. They have to switch away from paper to cloth because uh, they... Well, I mean, the steam starts making the paper soggy. Yep, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it tears real easily. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> they also eventually switch away from steam because they start having problems with the the cloth as well just the the water like the condensation getting into the cloth uh makes it heavier and then it doesn't rise as well and it just doesn't seem to be quite working for them so they decide to switch from steam to smoke so they start lighting fires under their balloons because they know this works but again their thinking isn't that it's the hot air their thinking is that there's a quality in smoke that causes it to rise and that uh, smoke is a kind of steam. Wow. You're not wrong. <laughs> and because of this, they always light extremely smoky fires. Like they use extremely smoky substances for their fires, for their hot air balloons. So all of this results in like a needlessly unpleasant hot air balloon journey. <laughs> Yeah, right not exactly pleasant <laughs> like they're they're burning like specifically like wool because it puts off like so much smoke and like that's gotta oh. smell so bad so yeah they start testing to larger and larger scales by 1782 they've made a balloon that uh it's approximately like three meters by three meters by four meters like it's like 10 feet by 10 feet by 13 feet kind of thing. Like it's, it's substantial enough. It's not going to lift a person necessarily, but they, each of these balloons, they try them out with like a long tether, right? Like a leash to the ground. Um, this balloon in 1782, uh, they lose control of it. It, it broke off of its tether um, or they let go of the tether. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but they lost control of it. And it ended up flying uh, well over a kilometer before it landed again. Okay. And it was kind of like, as far as like proof of concept goes, that's not bad. That's promising. The next year, 1783, uh, ends up being like an incredibly important year uh, for lighter than air aviation. Um a lot of things happened very quickly in one short year. First off, in June, uh, June 4th, uh, the Montgolfiers put on a public demonstration of their balloon. This time it's like much bigger. They've continued to scale it up and up. And okay. in this demonstration uh, on June 4th, they managed to attain uh, an altitude of 2,000 meters. Hey, that's impressive. That's a pretty good height, boys. Good yeah. work. Um, this is good enough to like catch the attention of like royalty. The king is interested in seeing one of these things and uh, asks to see it in action in September. So they want to send up a person originally, but here's a really interesting thing about lighter than air aviation. As far as anyone here knows, no human being has gone higher than like a really tall mountain basically right okay 
So no one knows how this is going to react to a human being on board. <laughs> well, they're concerned about like the interaction of like human physiology with those kind of altitudes. Because it is understood now that like air pressure decreases as you go up. And mm. it is understood that like when you go up mountains, uh, it's harder to breathe, right? Breathing, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, how, how high up can a person breathe? Is there any air that's breathable up there at all? Like we don't, we yeah. just, we just don't know. What's the upper limit of this? <laughs> yeah. So the king, in his royal wisdom, suggests, well, why don't we just send up two prisoners? Um, you know, <laughs> if they die, they die. Like, yeah, every time you and I do a scientific topic, it's like, <laughs> what happened? What about the prisoners? Well, who can we experiment on? <laughs> <laughs> um, they, uh, the Montgolfiers, um, well, and another a number of other people involved with the testing, but they they talk the king out of maybe the human prisoners as guinea pigs, and they land on the following that they're going to send up in the balloon: uh, oh. a sheep. I was going to say the other thing, the animal. <laughs> yeah, a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. The the Bremen town musicians. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Why is it a sheep, a duck, and a rooster? I don't know. Okay, but there's reasons behind them. It's just not, it's not just like, it's not just random. I, I promise you. But okay. Okay. So the thinking about a sheep uh, is that it's a mammal and it's approximately the same weight as a human. There's enough physio physiological similarities that like, it's not the most unreasonable approximation for like, can you still breathe? Yep, fair enough. They send a duck as essentially a control because they're expecting the duck to be fine because a duck is a bird and birds can fly. So if the duck dies, they know that there's something else that has gone wrong. It's not just an atmospheric con concern. Yeah, I can get that. <laughs> and then they send a rooster as the in-between because it's a bird, but not a flying bird. Just to see what happens. <laughs> All right. The, the question is whether there's some sort of quality innate to flying animals that allows them to survive up that high or whether that's really got nothing to do with anything so it's almost like a, a barometer for the increased likelihood of death of these different animals essentially yeah but it's not to survive because they're used to that sort of thing but like if the chicken and, and um, uh, sheep don't as a mammal and you know the bird that doesn't fly then maybe there's something innate to a flying animal that we just don't understand yet <laughs> exactly that's exactly it so the uh the september 11th demonstration goes off without a hitch all three animals survive to everyone's great relief uh very successful uh test in a lot of ways this really reminds me of like early like what we talked about with like early space travel right like sure we'll we'll toss sputnik up there no problem uh, I guess we better send a dog and some monkeys first before we subject any human beings to this. Yeah, it's a base level, you know, animal experimentation. Yeah. Yeah, but the, the, the parallel is really interesting to me. So that all goes well. And on the 15th of October, uh, Jacques Etienne becomes the first human being to fly in a lighter than aircraft. Now, it is a tethered flight. They aren't willing to just like let him go at this point. Um, but he does go up in the balloon and comes back down and lives to tell the tale and it's extremely successful. So 
that question before of like, well, who's the first human being to fly? He's a contender, honestly. Yep, for sure. That one being successful again about uh, another month later, 21st of November, a um, local inventor, a guy named Palatre de Rosier, um, goes into the balloon with a uh, with an army officer observer. Again, the military is very uh, interested in this technology. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the two of them go up in the balloon, first tethered, and then when things seem to be going well, they let the tether go. And this is the first free uh, human flight. There's no attachment to the ground. They just kind of go where the balloon goes. Now, it's successful. Everything is fine. But it is very much like, we're just going to see where this lands. (laughs) It comes down where and when it wants to. Yeah, it seems real, you know, laissez-faire. Sure. And I mean, ballooning today is a little more scientific than this but a lot of it is just like looking at atmospheric patterns and like picking days and routes that will work rather than any sort of like real like you've got up and down control but it's not like you got a little uh well actually that's not true some of them today have electric motors that can kind of do some work for you um i wasn't aware of that honestly to to this day it kind of baffles me the amount of um math for people who you assume are more or less hobbyists to have to put into okay well we have to wait for the atmospheric conditions to be perfect we're going to take off from here with the intention of basically touching down here mm-hmm. it, it seems much more difficult to create a flight plan for something that you can control as little as a hot air balloon and i know that there's like you said there's some control of us for up and down and even some like lateral movement if they have like electric mowers and stuff like that it just seems so much more difficult to move something that size with any sort of uh consistency oh yeah and and i would never argue that it's uh that it's fully controlled now like it's it's a it's a very difficult thing to do but i mean keep in mind this is the the first time anyone's gone up it was just kind of a, a hope, hope for the best that's what i mean it's like an, i would consider it an extreme sport now <laughs> uh, Again, okay well we let go and and you know only god can help us at this point so the Montgolfier balloons essentially like they, they the the fire rather than like being up top like those kerosene burners that they have in the hot air balloons now they just basically had it on the bottom and like were just feeding extremely smoky things into it and like letting the smoke rise into the balloon itself right they had to carry with them wet sponges because the fires being so smoky pitched so many embers that there was a danger that it was going to light the balloon on fire so the whole flight rather than like marveling at what happens they're sitting in there putting out fires on the balloon itself that's holding them up all because the brothers don't necessarily understand why their balloons work the way that they do they think they're filling it with smoke and smoke has innate rising properties man that's so scary to me right we barely know what we're doing but definitely cut the tether and we have no idea how we're going to control it beyond that and we might just burn it down mm-hmm. <laughs> like we well. yeah it's wild um within the same year uh, another uh inventor uh jacques charles who had actually been paying attention to the science of like lighter than air gases um december 1st charles managed to test a gas tight he had created like a rubberized uh uh fabric 
um, a gas tight hydrogen unmanned balloon successfully. Okay. And seeing that it works su- successfully, he decided that he was going to try it himself. And as opposed to like the the very careful Montgolfier brothers, he just sort of got in and decided to see what would happen. Um, Charles survived. Um, he ascended so quickly and so high. He he probably hit about three thousand meters of altitude. Wow. He got like really bad ear pain yeah like the pressure differential changed so quickly that it like hurt his eardrums really badly um may have perforated one um once he got down he just never flew again (laughs) yeah he's over it (laughs) i don't blame him Uh, but this is again another really big milestone in lighter than air in that he didn't just use hot air he used a different gas for buoyancy um after all this the popularity of ballooning just explodes across europe right like it's it's like the perfect like idle rich person uh hobby you know oh, yeah it's Boy. it's kind of dangerous but it's kind of lazy and uh, you need a lot of money to do it. So being able to is a status symbol on its own. And uh, also, it's just like really cool and really intriguing. Like it has all the hallmarks, right? You can look down the common folk like ants. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, these are the billionaires going to space for no good goddamn reason. One of my f- one of the things I think about a lot with the Montgolfier brothers is that um, the king was so pleased with all of these tests that he made uh their father uh nobility like he gave them a title so he became de montgolfier um he made him nobility in 1783 uh six years before the beginning of the french revolution (laughs) just in time perfect like it's just you know isn't it ironic don't you think um yeah mr play was afraid to fly it's it's just wild timing um so yeah i mean ballooning gets really popular but like again it's the sort of thing where like you're going up when you it's the kind of thing you go up in when you don't know when you're going to come down and you don't really care um you know there's this idea of what they call dirigible balloons which just means steerable which is essentially hey what if we had a hot air balloon but we could tell it where to go that's right. the entire concept behind it. But it's going to be a really long time before they figure out how. A lot of the early attempts involve, like, directing steam as kind of like a, a jet okay. behind yeah. you. They don't work very well. Nathan, uh, uh, steam as a, as a force, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, not, it's not very good. Then as you get into the 19th century, they start employing, like, actual steam engines to, like, drive a propeller kind of thing. Um, but honestly, most of them are complete failures until combustion engines, uh, like internal combustion engines arrive because they just don't have the power to move something that big in the air. Um, and certainly not with any degree of, of accuracy, right? You know, as you get further into the 19th century, uh, soft balloons, like essentially blimps, uh, filled with hydrogen are used, uh, in the civil war. There's only like eight of them, but yeah, the, the union used, uh, surveillance blimps in in the Civil War in in the United States to fairly good effect, from what I understand. 
by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, they begin developing rigid airships with actual, you know, control surfaces and things like that, uh, mm -hmm. motors. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, I think I think we'll leave it there for now. But by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, lighter than airships are really looking like the most promising vector for uh, general aviation. So I think that's probably a good place to leave it for now. Um, we get a you know a nice little glimpse at a futuristic uh, society that runs on nothing but zeppelins, and it's a it's a beautiful shiny sight. Uh, and when we get back, we'll uh, we'll revisit heavier than air uh, technology, which has not been great <laughs> at all. I was going to say for a while, but at all, uh, it's it's mostly it's mostly been of the feather arm variety. So uh, we'll we'll check back in with how that's doing. Uh, yeah, right after this break. All right, back on HI 101 here with Kevin Miller. Hello. And we've been talking mainly about balloons, I would say. Balloons and just poorly conceived attempts at, at non-balloon flight, but really all the success has been balloons. Bird persons and balloons. I think a lot of the issue that flight as a discipline uh, rather than just an aspiration uh, has run into so far is that nobody really understands how it works balloons are interesting because you know some people very deliberately and others kind of walked backwards into uh the idea of using the buoyancy of air as a fluid in order to gain lift right but in a lot of ways like balloons are cool because you can get high but like they don't feel like flying the way that birds do no destination and a trajectory <laughs> yeah well and then like, can control and like you know yeah. there's there's a lot of things there that there's there's an itch that it just doesn't really scratch and so that 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 fascination isn't going to go away you know we we sort of skipped forward on the timeline following what happens with balloons to some extent so i i want to back up a little bit but you know essentially heavier than air technology took a long time to develop below, uh, but beyond what da Vinci understood of it. You know, just sort of that idea of like essentially gliders, right? Right. And you can sort of understand why, like a, a simple glider is easy enough to construct a model of, right? Like, I mean, paper airplanes are easy. A good paper airplane is hard, but to get something that floats, not, not too hard at all. Yeah, you can figure it out. <laughs> In... Uh, like to give you an example of, of like the kind of stuff people are working on, even hundreds of years before the Mongolviers, uh, in 1647, an Italian inventor, Tito Burattini developed a four wing glider, uh, that was capable of carrying a cat, which, uh, I would love to see how that worked. <laughs> Cats notoriously chill. Um, yeah, I love being in planes. <laughs> famously famously happy with losing control over their own uh you know height and trajectory absolutely calm in the face of gliding uh Bertini claimed that this glider if uh scaled up could carry a human being and would even land with only the most minor of injuries it doesn't tell the legs won't be broken 
I mean, like, just as as ad copy, it needs a little punching up. Um, Minor of injuries, <laughs> asterisk. It's just the idea of, like, he's not willing to promise no injuries, but they really won't be that bad. Uh, it, it just, it really gets me. <laughs> there's there's a lot of despair over, over the same stuff, though, that Da Vinci runs into, right? Like, in 1716... Uh, an inventor, Emanuel Swedenborg, notes that essentially a flying craft is simply going to require like more strength and less weight than the human body offered. Again, pointing to this materials issue that we keep coming back to, right? But this is also what I mean when I'm when I'm saying that like it's not that the understanding isn't necessarily there; it's that often just the engineering isn't there. Uh, people sort of understand what they need to do, just not how to do it. And sometimes they just can't, even if they do know how. He's already looking at it and going like, listen, birds are really strong and really light for their size. Mm -hmm. What's more, it's easy to make a glider that is, you know, small enough to carry like a grape. And Mm -hmm. it's not too bad to get a glider that can carry a cat, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's bigger than a grape. <laughs> but there's a materials issue that's pretty well known in engineering, and I'm not an engineer, so I'm not going to do a great job of describing this. But as you make things bigger along one axis linearly, it scales in weight exponentially. Right. And there's a certain point with certain materials where you can make it uh, strong and stable at a certain size, but at a certain point as you scale it up, it's going to get to a point where it no longer is able to support the same amount of weight uh, or is no longer as strong or is no longer as light. Like you have to make concessions at a certain point. You're limited by the uh, uh, materials though you're limited by the technology of your era yeah exactly and so like that's it's it's the reason why birds that are able to fly kind of cap out at a certain size right it's the reason that land animals cap out at a certain size like um you, you can't get that much bigger than an elephant before it just sort of collapses under its own weight yeah or do you circulation issues and and that or like caloric intake issues or mm-hmm. whatever yeah, yeah, it's 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 really difficult to get around. It's just sort of, it, it's one of those physics problems that is just kind of a hard wall. There are ways to improve against it, but it's usually not just by simply scaling something up. Um, you know, it, it comes, uh, the, the again, I keep going back to the space race on this one because there's a lot of ways that it parallels it, right? But I go back to like Delta V on a rocket, right? You can continue making a rocket bigger and putting in more fuel, but you also have to be able to lift that fuel when you begin the journey. And sometimes it doesn't actually make sense to make a bigger rocket with more fuel. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't actually help you in the long run in terms of like its ability to escape the atmosphere. Definitely. So for every amount of extra payload you want to have, you have to add additional fuel and then you have to add additional fuel to lift that fuel and then et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so the answer is very rarely add more fuel. Usually the answer is make the rocket out of lighter things, make more uh, efficient engines, Mm -hmm. um, use more uh, energy dense fuels. It's 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 not just about the scaling 
it's usually about the materials that go into it or the engineering of those materials. It's really right. the same thing when it comes down to flying, because there is a certain point at which like the human body just can't generate enough strength to generate like enough thrust or enough lift, I should say, to lift a human body off the ground through flight. Um, we're just too dense for it our bones aren't built for it you know we're not physically strong enough to put on enough muscle to become strong enough would make you would make you heavier and require more muscle it's it's really a very similar problem in a lot of ways right yeah it's like the one factor that you can't easily change right the human is generally going to be human size and you can't make them the size of a cat to make this experiment work right and wings that you can make out of paper really easily at a small scale it's really hard to make paper that big because it, the weight is scaling exponentially not linearly uh all of a sudden it doesn't have the same amount of support there's a lot of that material type stuff that goes into all of this and it's recognized very early on in 1793 a spanish inventor uh diego marin aguilera manages to gr glide an entire 360 meters crossing a river in the process hey that's good it's a wood framed glider uh you you know made of cloth uh, you know, he jumps off a tower, but like, this is a successful gliding attempt. We're starting to kind of figure it out. But again, we don't necessarily understand what it is specifically that we're looking for in terms of lift. This is mainly gl gl like gliding in a downward trajectory. You have to right. start somewhere high. Um, it's, it's, it's essentially modern hang gliding without the understanding of how to use thermals to gain height. Right. It's, it's drifting. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of the early like airplane attempts uh, I saw referred to as powered hops rather than flight. And it, it kind of speaks to this issue, right? Like this idea of like, well, like, is it actually flying though? Because gliding isn't quite flying. Around this time, like this is around the time the Montgolfier our brothers are, are working on their balloons. And a lot of people start just sort of switching over to balloons like uh, this is this is the way we need to go for flight like this is going to be it there's also like this weird kind of eclectic group of inventors that is that are that are just stuck on heavier than air flight they want that bird-like uh experience unfortunately one of the ways that they decide to cope with this is like well maybe we're not jumping from high enough to get the lift we need Okay. <laughs> and great news, the Montgolfiers just invented a way to jump from a lot higher. Oh no. So they start oh. jumping their gliders from balloons. Um like two kilometers in the air. <laughs> it's bad. We don't need to get too deep into it, but like it's 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 as bad as you think it is. Oh my god. Yeah, no, I'm picturing a lot worse than broken legs. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then in the 1790s, a British inventor comes along, a guy named Sir George Cayley. And in a lot of ways, Cayley is the first person to approach heavier-than-air aviation scientifically, not rationally, but actually scientifically, in a way that involves making uh, controlled experiments and trying to like learn something about the principles of flight. And right. Cayley is, I would argue, Cayley is to aviation as Newton is to physics in a lot of ways. In wow, that, right. 
in that he just sort of single-handedly discovers most of the principles of flight as we understand them to this day. Oh, good for him. <laughs> so he starts working on it in the 1790s, around the same time as the Montgolfiers. But instead of like doing this thing where he builds an entire flying machine and says, it seems like this is going to work and just launches himself from a cliff for whatever reason. He goes like, well, maybe we can like test components of this and see if they work or not. Okay. So, so what kind of experiments are we talking about here? If we're doing like a component at a time? Well, he develops this spinning arm that is essentially like a, a spindle that he, I'm not sure exactly how it works. I would imagine pretty similar to a spinning wheel though, right? Like you get that rocking, motion turns into a spinning yeah. motion yeah yeah essentially uh and attached to this spindle is an arm on a hinge which hangs down right okay. and he begins experimenting with different wing shapes in order to find something that actually produces lift Hey, there's an idea. <laughs> now, he understands that if he spins it fast enough, basically anything is going to stick out just because it's like centrifugal force, right? So he tries to keep it under, like he finds the speed at which the like the arm plus the weight of the wing like lifts up on its own and mm -hmm. keeps it under that to make sure that what he's actually producing is like measurable lift. Okay. Yeah. And then starts uh, experimenting with different airfoils. So... Do you know what the difference is between an airfoil and a wing? Uh, I don't know. An airfoil is uh, symmetrical on each side. So usually like the cross section is sort of like a an elongated sort of teardrop section. Um, and that helps with stability through uh, through the air. That's the kind of thing that you'll see like on the back of like a like an F1 racer or something like that. Right. You want it to like keep it pretty steady. Uh, a wing specifically has a feature uh, known as it, it's called a cambered wing or an asymmetrical wing. And specifically what it means is that if you take the cross section of the wing there, it, it's not like vertically speaking, it's not the same uh, vertically mirrored. The top is a little bit thicker and it curves up more at the very top. Like if you've ever looked at like a cross section of a wing in a textbook, He's the one that identifies that like flat on the bottom, sort of curved on top shape. Yes, I think hundred times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it he he's the one that identifies that as a, a a shape that actually generates like meaningful lift. Like it actually creates lift. Mm -hmm. That's a big breakthrough, like a really big breakthrough. He also identifies like best angle of attack which tends to be around 15 degrees uh for creating lift uh he kind of identifies like better um uh like speeds at which it starts creating lift this leads him to like a number of really important concepts such as like what stalling is as in when like how you use wings when they're not completely flat it leads him to the understanding of low center of gravities for flying machines for extra stability um, a lot of gliding uh, machines up to this point, you essentially sat on top of the wing. Oh, okay. And they were really unstable, mm. which like from like a, I guess, ergonomic standpoint makes some sort of sense, right? Like to be sitting on top of a machine, um, but it's, it's terribly unstable. 
so he started putting center of gravities on his models lower and found like an immediate uh, immediate increase in stability. Cayley identifies the four primary forces of aviation uh, being lift, drag, weight, and thrust. Essentially, if you have those four numbers, you, you can know how successfully something is going to fly. Those are your four uh, vectors of force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's the one who comes up with essentially the modern configuration of a flying machine being, uh, you know, a wing assembly, a fuselage and a tail. Before this, it like, again, as we talked about, often tails weren't included. Um, I was in history to put a tail. <laughs> Here's a weird thing about Sir George Cayley. He, he had a lot of emphasis on light materials after observing birds, which makes a lot of sense. He also understood that for like a proper landing for like a flying machine that was actually like, you know, usable more than once, he probably right. had to land on wheels. Yeah. If you got a speed and now, now that we've had gliders that can go these great horizontal distances, they, they probably saw the need for that. Yeah. <laughs> so he saw a major need for like a very light wheel to put on the bottom of his gliders. And so just because of his interest in aviation, and it was completely unrelated. In 1804, he's the person who invented uh, the wire wheel, like the modern wire wheel, as in like the one you see on every bicycle. Oh, okay, like a spoked wheel. Yeah. Like a, but not specifically a spoked wheel, because a wire wheel uh, holds tension in the in the wires rather than a compression. So okay. a, sp a spoked wheel, there's pressure from the outside in. Okay. Uh, the uh the spoked wheel pulls like the spokes put tension on the wheel from uh the inside out got it okay um but like this allowed you to build a really really light really stable wheel um he just invented it for his plane as a side thing yeah like an afterthought that's always fun when that happens <laughs> mm -hmm. so now he's got gliders model gliders at least that are able to land safely and reliably that are stable that are able to create lift to some extent if he gets them going fast enough like right. this this is a significant amount of progress in a very short amount of time mm. um remember we talked all, about all those guys like jumping off balloons yes <laughs> heavier than flight uh, or heavier than air flight was getting a really bad rap in the early 1800s to the point that even though Cayley's work was not ready to like, he hadn't produced like a human carrying glider yet. Okay. He was so concerned about like the legitimacy of heavier than air flight that in 1809, uh, actually a series in eight, between 1809 and 1810, he publishes a, a series of three papers called on aerial navigation just to try and legitimize the discipline from like a scientific standpoint. Okay. I, he's fighting uphill, I guess, at this point. A little bit. Every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, there's so many quacks out there, you know? He's he trying to... Start <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he just wants this to be like a thing based in physics and like good science and good scientific practice. Um, by... And he works the rest of his life on this. It is, it is very slow progress on the practical side of things, even though the the theoretical stuff comes along really strongly and influences a lot of other builders. Um, by 1848, he uh, finally builds a glider that is capable of carrying uh, a small child. Um, we don't know this child's name. I get like a very like you there boy kind of 
sense yeah. to this story. It, well, like, he's, like, where did you get this child from? He's usually just referred to as like a village child oh, or, or a local child. And essentially he, he just gets this kid and he puts him in, in a glider and sends him off. And everything goes fine. It's okay. But like, at the very least, I'd like to know the kid's name and give him a little bit of credit. I, I have no idea if he knew what he was in for. Um, yeah. Oh, all right. I mean, history, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, so this glider is actually like a triplane. Like, it's got a series of like three sets of wings, which okay. seems seems to be working best for him. By 1853, so another uh, five years later, Kaylee manages to scale this glider up to the point where it can carry an adult. Again, we don't know who actually flew this thing. I've seen it suggested that it was his butler. I've seen it suggested that it was like, you know, a, like a, a grounds key, like a number of different like staff members, basically. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I get the I get the feeling that Kaylee, like he was he, I mean, he was a knight. Uh, he was like very quintessential. Like uh, they usually call him like gentleman inventors or gentleman scientists in this era. This gotcha. Idea of like a really rich guy who has nothing better to do but very passionate about it. Um, yeah, he's a hobbyist, and so he's out there doing it with his money and his resources. Right, but it's also this era where like doing science would basically mean like you went for a long walk in your backyard and you found a kind of bug you'd never seen before, so you get to name it for all eternity. Right. So I mean, like chill. Like I love that people are doing this as like a hobby, like just a thing to do for fun, but also yeah like i mean at least name the guy that you put in your poor like, the poor guy that you put in your glider seems a little unreasonable which household servant are we gonna put in the glider today <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah uh kaylee also ran into the conclusion that essentially powered heavier than air flight would not be possible without a better engine and by better we mean specifically uh better power to weight ratio Okay. Um, he experimented somewhat with like steam engines, but they're just mm. simply not efficient enough. Not worth using for the, the weight that it adds. Yeah, essentially. You just couldn't get any sort of real propulsion out of it. There are other people that start kind of following along in Kaylee's footsteps, both in terms of like their philosophy of design, but also in terms of their like bored rich guy stuff. Um <laughs> So you get you get uh, a guy, uh, William Samuel Henson in 1842. He does actually build a steam powered plane uh, at scale, which means that it was not big enough to actually carry anybody. But as a proof of concept, mm -hmm. you know, you could make a small steam engine powerful enough to carry or to be carried by a small glider. So you could create power flight in that way. In a lot of ways, this is. Uh, again, anticipating the modern airplane. Uh, it's a fixed mono wing, so it means that the wings don't move. There's only one set of wings. Uh, mm -hmm. It's propeller driven, and it's actually a tractor propeller, which means that it's pulled from the front rather than pushed from behind. Yeah. Uh, but again, only ever built at scale. In 1856, Jean-Marie Jean Lebris has an interesting first, which is that he's the first one to end up flying higher than his starting point in a glider yeah cool making it he achieved this by uh tying his glider to a horse 
and having his horse run down the beach, pulling the glider behind him. Oh, it was powered, but powered by a beast on the ground. Cool. But like, again, now we're getting into some interesting territory, right? Is this is this powered flight? I mean, technically, yeah, it's literal horsepower. He was in the glider. Yep. Uh, the glider pr- produced lift mm-hmm. because like, that's the thing. Like if it was incapable of producing lift, he would have just basically been dragged along the ground until the horse got sick of his nonsense, gave up. <laughs> but he's got, uh, he's like parasailing at this. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It's exactly parasailing. I, yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent what's happening here. Now, the main thing that's missing from this equation for me is control. Yeah, of course. You're still in a place where it's just like, well, hope for the hope for the best. If there's a bad <laughs> no. gust of wind, if there's a bad gust of wind, you're just gonna corkscrew into the ground. I'm now imagining an extremely long like horse whip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing oh, I no. forgot to check back on. I was reviewing my notes before I did this, and I was like, man, I forgot to check if somebody was riding the horse, or if it was just him <laughs> and his horse, like 200 <laughs> meters down, with extremely long reins. <laughs> It's a, it's a very good image. I like it a lot. It is. It seems like something you would see in like a wood cut, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. Patent office, like, hmm, yeah, I think I'll just file this one away. <laughs> in 1858, there's a new breakthrough in terms of like first principles of aviation. When Francis Herbert Wenham, again, again, one of these gentleman scientists, uh, determines that the leading edge of a wing is more important than the surface area of a wing. Okay. And that's where that difference between drag, like minimizing the, the drop of a plane, is different than creating the lift of the wing. So Wenham is saying, well, it doesn't matter. Like, th- we're, not, we're not a parachute. We're trying mm-hmm. to fly. And generating lift, as long as you can generate more lift than you lose drag you're in a better place and the longer uh and thinner a wing is the more leading edge it has and the leading edge is what creates lift so we should be angling for that for for airplanes i see so it's a different side of the coin which is to say that if if you focus on increasing lift and reducing drag like those are the two things you have to do in order to get the net up Mm mm-hmm yeah, and that's where that like lateral thinking engineering solve comes in that we were talking about. Um, right. We're changing the shape of the wing to make a more efficient wing. And mm-hmm. we're, we're thinking differently about what it is that a wing specifically does for us. Um, yeah, because there, I don't know, like before this, I think people were thinking about flying almost the way of almost the way like a flying squirrel flies, which is to say it doesn't. <laughs> But like that's that's what they're going for, right? Like jump from a very high place and mm-hmm. glide a long, long way using these big kind of pockets that that reduce your terminal velocity, essentially. Yeah, and and all the better if you can control them to have a controlled landing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what Wenham is saying here, following on Kaylee's work, is to say that like, well, that's not. But like that's a dead end, essentially, right? Like that's not actual flight. Um, we're just trying to replicate better and better a process that doesn't really meet our definitions of flight anyway, so we should abandon that. This is a yeah. better method. 
Yeah, it's step one, which is you're reducing the drag, great, but you also need to increase the lift. Mm -hmm. So this is, if you've ever seen like old video or old photos of, of, of planes that just have more and more stacked wings, mm -hmm. where they've got like five, six, seven sets of wings, this is the rationale behind it. Like, yes, those videos are always funny because they always end in like the wings all collapsing and the old timey dude throwing up his hands and in despair because his, his extremely bad and expensive flying machine didn't work because yeah, it went like you know 15 feet and then did a nosedive and it just collapsed into a pile of like balsa yeah for some reason he like rolled it out of the you know the top story of a barn or whatever and it didn't go anywhere um but this is the principle behind it they're trying to create as much leading edge as possible right I guess the thought is that if you can create more lift, like you have a certain amount of lift that you're creating per wing, if you put more wings on it, then you're going to create more lift. <laughs> well, the, the other side of that, too, though, is, again, a materials issue, right? Like, if you look at a modern glider, their wings are extremely long and very, very thin, right? They have that tensile strength to be able to do that now. <laughs> That's 100% it. You couldn't make a wing that long that wouldn't just collapse under its own weight after a while. Um so the only way to get more leading edge is to stack them. Mm -hmm. So anyways, um, in 1864, Matthew Pierce Watt Bolton. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. That's his name. Wrote a paper on something called lateral control. And basically what he said was we need to start doing more than just getting off the ground. We need to control uh, flight when we get into the air. And he proposed what is essentially the modern aileron. Now, ailerons are flaps on the back of the wing. Yeah. And the ailerons are the ones that uh, allow you to bank. They essentially control uh, roll, but they allow you to turn through rolling. Okay, I see. So one goes up and one goes down. And then you turn, like you bank and turn in that direction. So this is the first patent for something approaching a modern air control system it's only one third of the components that you need but we're starting to think about like how we're actually going to control it when we get up there which to this point has not really been the biggest concern no and fair enough but uh you know it's definitely a safety concern if you're going to start doing it 100 <laughs> mm, percent 1866 the aeronautical society of great britain is founded and their first uh major push as a somewhat official body, I suppose, is to begin a search for a more uh, efficient engine. They put out prize money basically for, uh, I believe it's a hundred pounds at the time, which I, I don't know what that converts to, but it's not a small amount. Basically putting out a call for uh, engines that have the best weight to thrust ratio. Again, there's an understanding of what they need here. It's a, it's an engineering problem. 1871 the first wind tunnel is invented okay this helps remove some of that like centrifugal force issue of that whirling arm setup that kaylee has yeah it allows for a cleaner experimentation mm -hmm. and it starts uh bringing out like better test results very very quickly one of the first things that it proves though beyond a shadow of a doubt is that kaylee's principles of cambered wings uh, are actually even better than he had been hoping. Uh, oh, great. They, they work much better than he was initially thinking because he was trying to kind of compensate for that whirling arm uh, situation. So 
it, it confirms that they're on the right track for wing shape, which is a, a really good news situation and allows them to start testing uh, more variations on that more easily. In 1874, uh, Félix Dutemple builds the first steam powered uh, monoplane, he called it. It's a, a one winged or, or one set of wings plane uh, out oh. of aluminum, which is a fairly new material at this point. Oh, okay. Uh, it's going to become like extremely important to uh, aviation, just not for, you know, almost another century. <laughs> uh, well, no, not not quite a century, but, you know, another another 60 years or so. This uh, monoplane built out of aluminum uh, managed to achieve lift under power, but it was built at scale. So people didn't uh, ride in it and it required launch from a ramp, which was kind of seen a little bit as cheating, a little bit. But the problem with with gaining lift is like you have to hit an initial speed, right? And so the thinking is like, well, if we can get it to that speed and the the engine can keep it going at that speed, then that's good enough. Like that that does the job. Focus at this point because like the internal combustion engine has like been invented at this point, but it's not super common and it's not super reliable. Like it's still a very like custom built thing. Uh, okay. Carl Benz isn't going to uh, uh, patent his uh, internal combustion engine, which is basically the root of the modern IC engine uh, until 1879. So, and that's just in cars, and it's big and it's clunky and heavy. Hmm. Focus really switches to work to back to working on gliding principles, trying to really squeeze every last drop out of wing shapes, uh, wing ratios, which is kind of like the the amount of leading edge compared to surface area, like all these like little adjustments that they're hoping to make, as well as starting to focus on control. There's a number of like, I know this sounds a little odd, but there's a number of like very famous gliders in this era. Uh, they just like become famous for like being like very good at uh, piloting gliders. Uh, one of the most famous being a, a German man named uh, Otto Lilienthal, who made over 2,000 successful glides in the 1880s to 1890s. Wow. Um, but not only did he make all these glides, he also rigorously documented and photographed all of them. So it was really useful for other aviationists because he documented what worked well and what didn't. Yeah, it's like uh, flight data. Yeah. It's perfect. Essentially, yeah. Lilienthal died in 1896 in a glider accident. Essentially what happened was he had gotten very good at controlling his glider by more or less shifting his weight from side to side. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that he had had the most trouble with and he had never really solved was if his glider went into a nosedive. Oh. Because you can't really shift your weight in such a way to like control your pitch, right? You can't bring the nose of the glider back up. No, you know, and that's what ultimately ended up killing him was going into a, an uncontrollable nosedive that he was unable to pull out of. There's a number of other big uh, inventions in this period. One of them, which sounds a little weird, in 1894, uh, an Australian man named Lawrence Hargrave invented the box kite. I'm sure you've seen this kind of kite before. It's basically like a rectangular prism mm -hmm. with just like two ends of it have the canvas around it. It's a really stable type of kite and just no one had tried it before, but working off of like the principles that make that kite so stable, they realize that biplanes are also fairly inherently stable and a lot of glider models start 
moving towards a biplane model at this point in time. The reason for that, I, like just physically, I don't understand really. <laughs> uh, be, be, behind biplane specifically, I don't oh. particularly well understand it. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm very much at my limits of of understanding in terms of like uh, aviation physics. Okay, yeah, I wonder if it's like a, a ratio um, between the lift and the drag, where adding additional sets of wings just gives you too much additional drag for the amount of lift. Yeah, I think it's also like an inherent stability thing. There's this there's this argument happening uh, in gliding at this point in time between control and inherent stability, and the idea of inherent stability is something that will basically fly true without any controls. Okay. A lot of people think that the best thing to do is find the most inherently stable uh, configuration and work on controlling it from there. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Rather than giving pilots maximum control and working out from that. Yeah, I, I guess I would understand that stability is kind of your baseline, so I, I guess I'm on that side of the camp. Mm-hmm. And it makes some sense. Uh, they find that biplanes are more inherently stable than monoplanes. I'm not sure if that has something to do with like the top wing correcting for any you know changes in the bottom wing and vice versa. I, I don't particularly understand the, the physics behind it, but I, I have seen it enough places to take it as fact. Yeah, fair enough. In 1896, uh, an American uh, inventor named Samuel Pierpont Langley made the first sustained unmanned powered heavier than air flight at scale like at human scale so he had a, oh. a a powered glider that flew over one kilometer at 40 kilometers an hour he just didn't put someone in it oh um he was given funding by the u.s military who was very interested in it they gave him fifty thousand dollars which in today's money would be a little north of 1.5 million dollars wow to develop this thing and they're like we need controlled manned flight this is going to be great and langley worked on like starting to like scale it up to like work on control stuff he experimented with internal combustion engines he never managed to get a manned powered stable flight out of this thing he would launch it off of ramps over the river basically to to deal with like crashes and hmm. they all just kind of landed in the river no. Uh it was never it was never uh successful really by any uh well certainly by the military standards they were very yeah. dis disillusioned after uh after Langley's uh test flights they kind of wrote off flight to some extent as as being unrealistic. In 1901 a guy named Gustav Whitehead uh his original German name being uh Weisskopf, uh he claimed that he had a sustained powered manned flight in 1901. There are some local newspaper clippings about having done this. Uh -huh. um, if that's true, like there are eyewitnesses and everything. If that's true, this would have been the first sustained powered manned flight in 1901. It's extremely controversial. There's a lot of people who are unwilling to recognize Weisskopf's or Whitehead's uh, uh, claim on this. Mm. It's just never reproduced. <laughs> uh weirdly enough nobody made that big deal out of it like it was kind of like a an article in the paper that was kind of like yeah uh local man has a flying machine and that was kind of the extent of it other other flyers are doing so in like either like a very like controlled sort of 
they're part of a club or they're inviting people out to witness it or things like that. He just, he just sort of did it without much fanfare. Yeah. And like he would build other flyers in like the next, you know, eight or 10 years. But at that point it's past the Wright brothers and it's not that big a deal. So there are people who say that Whitehead was the first one to pull it off. But then again, we get into like these issues of like, okay, well, what is, what is like true flight? Like what is the first truly flying person? Right. Cause he didn't have control. Right. Okay. Uh, the Smithsonian specifically uh, refuses to recognize that as well as many uh, aviation historians. So um, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to say about that one. Um, I believe it more than, you know, the ninth century guy, but Fair. kind of less than some of the better documented ones. Uh, this brings us all to the to, to the Wright brothers, which is where this was always going, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you heard of them. American inventors, uh, bike shop and small engine shop owners, uh, huge admirers of Lilienthal, had followed his work very closely. And really what they saw in his 1896 death was evidence that what flight really needed to move forward was control. And so they focused initially on gliders but on learning how to control gliders so they took a little bit different tack to flight than somebody like langley who's going for inherent stability right they owned a bike shop bikes aren't inherently stable right right if you just stand a bicycle up it's gonna fall over that doesn't mean that it's uncontrollable unstable is not the same thing as uncontrollable um their experience with bikes showed them that like those aren't the same thing and that maybe it's okay to look at something that is easily easily maneuverable rather than something that's just going to keep itself in a straight line because you don't always want to just go perfectly straight nope that's totally fair and i mean they've got the um the expertise to prove that that can work <laughs> mm-hmm. they used a, a method known as wing warping which involved uh t- tugging on the corners of the fabric wings so it would create an aileron style uh opposite uh bend to the wings they developed this after watching how birds control themselves in flight so that's how they were planning to deal with uh roll and again we'd already proved that roll could be controlled through that that opposite bend of the wings right and that's how you're going to turn uh, uh or or turn through rolling but they found that occasionally you would have like occasionally it would go the wrong way. Like you would expect to turn one way and you'd go the other way, usually because of crosswinds. Oh, okay. And so they realized that that was like half of what is needed to turn an airplane. They also specifically because of the way Lilienthal had died, realized that you needed something to control pitch um, because you couldn't always be going perfectly flat. And so they uh, developed the elevator. Elevators are flaps that, uh, go up and down on both sides and they control your up and down pitch. This had not been put on a glider before. That yeah, seems important. <laughs> yeah. So in 1899, they did a whole bunch of glider experiments. There are like set equations at this point in time for figuring out whether a machine is going to have lift or not. Um, and they were like very rigorous about this stuff. Like they were extremely like methodical, mechanically minded. And they realized that like their gliders didn't have as much lift as they were supposed to. And so they basically tossed these equations out, built their own air tunnel 
and began like deriving them from first principles basically and realized that a lot of the coefficients that people who are dealing with gliders were working with were actually low by like a pretty substantial amount as in they needed a lot more lift than they thought they did that's interesting okay it was a mathematical error that's all it came down to it was gospel for that many years (laughs) yeah yeah essentially uh in 1902 they decided to add a rudder uh to control uh yaw so you know left and right movement and they tied this into the wing warping because they realized that with a rudder in place it would uh eliminate those uh accidental uh wrong turns using just roll oh okay yep and with the addition of the rudder, you've just added control on all three axes and you've developed the modern uh, airplane control system. Cool. In 1903, they patent this system. Many uh, historians consider the development of control a more important invention than the addition of powered flight to the equation. Yeah, it sounds like it's key to what they were doing, honestly. <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. Control is the most important part. It's it's similar to what you were saying about the riding the bike earlier, where it's like it's not inherently stable, but you can control it, and that is enough to allow you to stop crashing at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like work, and then as and then if it's not a hundred percent stable, at least you can correct for it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly it. They carved their they hand carved their own propellers from spruce. A lot of this kind of went by feel, to be honest with you. This is one of the weirdest parts. It has very little bearing. I shouldn't say that. It's it's incredibly important. It's unintentionally important, though. Their their propellers were, you know, using modern uh, measurement, rated at between 75 and 82 percent efficient. Uh, Propellers efficiency is rated at like how much power you're putting it in, uh, putting into it. Uh, how much rotary power you're putting into it versus how much thrust power you're getting out of it, right? Uh, Yeah, it's uh, energy efficiency. Yeah, it's energy efficiency. 82% at peak efficiency, 75% most of the time. Yeah, modern propellers with like uh, computer-assisted design and testing average about 5% more efficient. I was going to say, you can't get a whole lot higher than that. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's crazy to me. Now, like propellers, like propeller carving is going to become its own industry, like to the point that well through uh, both world wars, you have people hand carving propellers. That's wild. Because, well, how do you how do you machine a propeller, right? I, I've, n- I've never considered it before. <laughs> it's a very difficult piece of of. Uh, hardware to machine and it's not the same as a propeller as you would think of it in water Mm -hmm. um it's doing a slightly different thing it's not just pushing it forward so it's not like a it's not like a propulsion screw for a for a ship those can basically be flat an airplane propeller has elements of wing to it that allow it to not only um not only pull it forward or push it depending on which setup you're using for a propeller, but also allow it to create like a stable airstream. That's not like cavitating and uh, ruining your thrust. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. There's a bunch of stuff going on with propellers. I uh, will not pretend that I understand propellers like at all. They're, they're, they're magic to me. Um, And the fact that, (laughs) yeah. 
Well, and, and the fact that two guys in 1902, 1903 managed to build the perfect propeller, basically, uh, by hand. I don't get it. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Once they finally felt comfortable enough with the gliding control to add uh, power to it, they shopped around for a while to try and get somebody to build an internal combustion engine for them and were basically turned away. Everyone told them, like, you couldn't get that amount of power at that size. So they just went to, like, their shop mechanic, like the guy that worked for them, a guy named yeah. Charlie Taylor, and said, here's what we need. And he said, uh, let me give it a shot. And he built it in six weeks. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 I struggled a little bit to understand whether this was Charlie Taylor was an exceptionally good uh, mechanic or if it was a matter of like it was sort of accepted what kind of power ratings you could get out of an internal combustion engine and people weren't trying. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. Fact yeah. is, fact is, they just got old Charlie Taylor down at the shop to build it for them, though. Um, they initially intended to have their first flight, uh, December 14th, 1903, which was the 121st anniversary of the Montgolfier test. Oh, okay. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. Except Wilbur flew for about three seconds before crashing it. Nice. Uh, (laughs) they took about three days to fix up the damage and December 17th, uh, they had a interesting uh rules for flying by the way number one their father had promised uh, had made them promise that they would never uh fly together in the same plane okay fair he didn't want an accident that you know he lost both of his sons which is really Royal sweet fa- really sweet and kind of sad and i don't know <laughs> don't like thinking about it too much a dangerous industry i get it <laughs> but he also wanted to not like it, it was also about like not losing like the work that they had done like it was so much just the two of them that like he wanted this work to continue even if there was some sort of tragedy so they promised their dad they would never fly together um the other thing was like on these early tests they always alternated because they didn't want to like they didn't want like just one guy to definitely be the first one they seemed they seemed pretty close it's kind of cool um so december 17th three days later it's orville's turn he's up Orville flew 37 meters on that day, which doesn't seem like that far. And it wasn't like super high, but -hmm. it's considered the first successful controlled powered human flight. flight, And that's usually the date that gets thrown around in terms of like the first flight of all time. It's interesting because after all this other stuff, like I'm not saying the the Wright brothers didn't do a lot of work. Their control scheme is is extremely important. Yeah, definitely. But it's sort of like they finally got to a spot where they had built on enough previous knowledge and they had good enough materials uh, that they were able to put it all together and be the ones to to get there first. Yeah, and it sounds like there was a decent amount of. Uh, I mean. It's almost like a perfect storm where they have the the people who are, you know, they, they're, like you said, well-versed in how bikes work and they're building a control system based on that sort of principle. They're redoing mm-hmm. the math that people had accepted as the way to do it mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. They just happen to have this guy who can build a great motor for them. <laughs> like, it, it, they, they had everything working out for them and uh, it 
Sounds like they they got there. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing. They they flew specifically uh, at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina uh, because number one, it's really sandy, so uh, crashing isn't as hard. Yeah. Number two, it's got pretty gentle hills that you can like launch the the the, the plane down. Uh, it actually launched off of a rail uh, downhill to get up to the speed that it needed. So there's still wow. some like assistance to getting it off the ground. In fact, some people have said that they're not the first flyers because of that assistance. I have a power launch. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they always flew into a headwind, which helps you get up to like kind of artificially get up to flight speed. Because if you're flying into a headwind, again, Newton's third law, right? It's it's the equal and opposite reaction. If you're flying into a headwind, it's the same as flying in still air at a much higher speed. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So they flew four flights in that first plane, alternating each time. The longest one was 200 meters, which is actually like, that's a real flight at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. By 1905 and by their third plane, uh, they're making flights that are like a half hour long at a time. Like they're staying in the hour in, in the air for a half hour. Uh, flights up to 39 kilometers. Wow. Like this is this is real flying within a period of a couple of years. Yeah. And what's cool about that is that for that distance, you're definitely not just going in a straight line, right? Like you're you're using that control system to you're putting it through its rigors going up and banking yeah exactly yep all of that stuff is is coming into play they actually originally the rudder system was attached to the wing warping they disconnected that to give them finer like even finer control which made it more unstable but gave them so much more control that it resulted in much more successful flights awesome they tried pitching this to the military but the military was like ah see we had this guy langley uh (laughs) once burned twice shy we gave him a lot of money and it really didn't work out i don't think we're interested in this and so the brothers kind of went okay okay i guess they kept kind of pitching the military but they decided instead to connect with some of the flight uh societies in europe who in about 1906 were starting to actually have some pretty good success of their own but success for them like for the french flying club in particular uh you know a guy named alberto santos dumont who was portuguese actually a brazilian portuguese uh sorry uh had flown for like you know 25 meters kind of thing and had heard about the wright brothers but was also like no it's nonsense nobody can fly for a half hour at a time um You know, that's that's where they're at in Europe right now, which, again, isn't unreasonable because that's where the Wright brothers were at, you know, three years before. Uh, good story about Alberto Santos Dumont. Um, he was complaining to his buddy one time that he was sick of taking his pocket watch out of his pocket to check the time while flying because it's like really treacherous and he has to keep his hands on his controls. Uh, so his friend, a guy named uh, Louis Cartier, uh, invented the first rich wristwatch in 1904 for this guy to wear on his flights. I was about to ask. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. byproduct of the flight industry. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, bicycle wheels and, uh, and wristwatches, right? Fun fact. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, the the Wright brothers spend 1905-1906 refining their designs, uh, setting up like companies to you know deal with patent stuff, uh, mm-hmm. building more planes. 
Uh, and then in 1907, they uh, they take one of their planes, they ship one of their planes to Europe, and Wilbur goes around demonstrating it. And once these guys see what the Wright brothers are capable of, their their minds are completely changed about the status of like flight in America and like flight in general. And they realize like, oh, it is all about control. Because the thing is, it wasn't even that they were staying in the air that was so impressive to them. It was the how tight and controlled the turns were that they were making. Mm -hmm. how precisely they could control their aircraft finally in 1908 the wright brothers land that military contract that they're looking for because like it seems like a no-brainer right yeah i mean it, it sounds like military applications are what was tied into the history of aviation right from the beginning you tie a guy to a kite so that you can spy on people and stuff like that hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so they finally get this contract for reconnaissance. Uh, they managed to turn all this money into like a proper company where they, they actually have the, the company buy out their personal patents on all these designs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and, and turn it into like a real actual, like going concern. So this company is both building planes, designing planes, and they set up like a flight school training people how to fly the planes. Ah, that's cool too. Military pilots are not good at first. The, the thing about the Wright's planes is that they spent so much time developing that control system that they got very good at it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had a hard time controlling the planes to the point where the military was like, these are not flyable. Like so many people had crashed and the Wright brothers were like, no, your pilots are just bad. Like we can fly them. No problem. So there's this weird, like, there's this weird problem of like scalability of like the learning curve. Yeah. This is an entirely new profession. How do we train people? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and also how do you convince the Wright brothers that maybe their design could be more friendly to newcomers? Yeah. Like that. It's not entirely the, the, the learner's fault if they're not doing well. So they finally get to a point where they're developing uh, flying machines that the military is able to buy. And, you know, from there, uh, planes go to, uh, you know, the first use in, in, in military application is in 1911 with the uh, with the Italian uh, military. Then you get into World War One and things just explode. Right. First as reconnaissance tools, then as actual carriers of weapons, um, you know, you get into it starts out with like reconnaissance pilots carrying pistols. <laughs> <laughs> which the idea of firing at another plane from a moving plane with a pistol is just comical. Um, yeah. You go from that to people dropping essentially long fused grenades out of planes to mm. more proper bombing uh, planes to fighter planes with machine guns that are timed to go in between the propellers. Uh, so you don't blow anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you don't blow your own propeller off. Uh, and, and by the end of the war, you're looking at that whole like, flying ace sort of thing you know the the red baron and all that <laughs> so you know it, it varies quickly once it becomes wartime scales into a military application thing it becomes very quickly uh a government-run program like yeah the the wright brothers are getting contracts yeah other com companies are getting contracts to build these things but like it 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 becomes bigger than these like you know intrepid inventors right it's not yeah. hobbyists anymore. It's it's now a, a, a part of the the state machine, as it were. Um, War has a way of doing that. <laughs> yeah, and so it, it just it just takes off from there. World War II advances things even more. 
Um, we talked a little bit about uh, the lighter than air stuff. There's attempts at making lighter than air uh, machines um, the prevalent form of like commercial air flight for a long time specifically the uh the uh invention of the the zeppelin so it's a it's a structured uh lighter than aircraft so like a blimp is just like literally a big bag of hydrogen right whereas a zeppelin has an internal structure and then a skin over it right yeah zeppelins were useful in that you could uh ballast the the hydrogen with regular air to control your height uh, mm-hmm. as well as putting, you know, internal combustion engines on it for propulsion. Um, at their best, Zeppelins were crossing the uh, the Atlantic in a matter of like two days. They were actually a pretty good way of traveling. They mainly lost confidence due to the whole, you know, Hindenburg incident and the fact that the Hindenburg wasn't the first time that that had happened. Yeah. It was the last in like a long string of them. And then the war ends up grounding Zeppelins and then, once you get into World War II technology, airplanes become so good that the advantages of, of Zeppelins kind of disappear. They're too dangerous. They're too slow. Um, you know, after after World War II, the commercial airline industry takes off. Uh, and there's kind of no looking back at that point. Why sit on a, on a Zeppelin for two days uh, when you can sit on a plane for, you know, at that point in time, eight hours? Right. So, yeah, that that's sort of... I don't know where, where the story of aviation becomes a little less interesting. There's sort of like a heroic period in the twenties where people are establishing a lot of firsts, you know, uh, Charles Lindbergh across the Atlantic in 1927, stuff like that. But it's all sort of an extension of just iterating on the, the Wright brothers design to some extent, right? Uh, you're just getting better and better versions of these airplanes. There are a lot of other inventors that are, that are helping push it along, but again it's a materials issue uh it's a uh engine efficiency issue and then it's a control issue as long as you continue solving those problems airplanes continue to get better and better right um so that's not a fun way to end so i thought i thought i'd uh i thought i'd roll back a little bit i wanted to tell you about something that happened in 1910 uh, May 25th of 1910, actually. Uh, two very, very special uh, flights happened. Um, remember we talked about the the rules that the Wright brothers had um, of always flying in two separate planes? Mm-hmm. May 25th, 1910, after specifically, like, explicitly asking their father for permission, that was the only time that Orville and Wilbur Wright flew together in the same plane. Okay. They got to go, no, 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 this is a happy ending. They had a really nice time. It was the only time it was the only time that the two inventors of the modern airplane had the chance to go and have a flight together. And I thought that was really nice. That's the first yeah. flight. Yeah. And on the second flight, uh Orville took their father, uh Will uh sorry, uh Milton, uh up for his one and only airplane flight ever. So this man had supported the boys through their entire career of inventing planes, which is a wild thing to support. That's definitely he was 82 years old. Oh, wow. And Orville got to take him on a little flight around. And apparently he had a blast. Yeah, that's really sweet. You could hear him from the ground yelling to go higher, go higher, go higher. Oh, <laughs> it's really heartwarming. I thought it was a really nice place to end. Yeah, that's really sweet. Uh, what a topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed doing this one. It was nice. There's I oh. mean, 
you know, there's there's some disasters, but most of them are kind of like of that self-made sort where it was kind of like, what you, what were you expecting? You jumped off a tower with some feathers uh, glued to your arms. Yeah, if only you put a tail on there. <laughs> if only you put on a tail, which is uh, apparently what birds land on. So, yep. you know, See you every day. that's how it goes. Uh, that's 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 early aviation. You know, it, it gets it, it becomes such a different thing once it's, it's an established uh practice industry i suppose um yeah but but while it was just a bunch of weirdos trying to figure out how to make an how to make a machine flap as good as a bird can flap um Mm -hmm. boy that's some interesting stuff that comes out of it a bunch of idle rich just uh doing a hundred hang glides until they break both their legs (laughs) bribing local orphans to sit in their glider yeah, unnamed local orphans and uh, you know household staff. <laughs> that's 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 aviation for you. I I hope you enjoyed this one. I I had a lot of fun doing it. I did. I did. Yeah. That's a fun topic that didn't have our usual dark edge. <laughs> yeah, I I think it was. Uh, yeah, it's nice to take a little break there. Well, thanks yeah. for coming on, man. I, I I really appreciate having you here. There are competing claims to the title of first person to fly, largely based on a need for setting more parameters. Maybe it goes to Jacques-Étienne Montgolfier and his balloon, or one of the poorly documented flights made by either German-American Whitehead or Australian Richard Pierce that could have taken place before the Wrights, or even to Santos Dumont after them with an airplane able to take off under its own power. Perhaps we should be giving that honor to a nameless prisoner that was strapped to a kite. But the Wrights learned how to wrangle their machine and fly like a bird. And as much as I went into this topic looking for a different answer, that may be as good a definition as any. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode I state that Henry Cavendish isolated hydrogen using electricity. That's not actually true. He used a process that involved dropping either zinc or iron into an acid. Ironically, he did use electricity to light that hydrogen on fire and create water, though, all of which seems very backward to me, but that's fine. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.